Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Rise Up Voices from the Frontline. My name is Krista Fee, and I am your host. And today I'm bringing to you a guest that I have had the privilege of spending a little bit of time with in the real world. And he is an all around amazing human being, uh, making a huge impact in so many different ways in firefighter mental health and wellness. So I would like to bring to you Keith Hanks, retired firefighter EMT. How are you today? I'm good, Krista. Thanks for having me on the show. How are you doing? I am wonderful. So we touched base uh, about a year ago at, yep. at a convention when I was just getting started in um, trying to build the nonprofit and the podcast and all of this stuff that's going on. Hmm. And you were in a whole different world as well. So it's yeah. been a huge year of growth and change and transformation for us both. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> it's, it certainly has. It's weird. It, it feels like it's been longer. And I mean, we were talking about this. It feels like it's been longer than a year. Um, it must have been a very long year for whatever reason, but uh, definitely growth and, and challenges for sure. Right. So I always love going all the way back to childhood a little bit because mm. uh, as a psychology major, I'm super, I'm super focused on developmental aspects of our of the way our brains work and our belief systems and all of that and then i firmly believe that there's some connections to us having adverse childhood experiences and choosing these paths of dedication to our country and community that so many of us choose so tell us a little bit about um your childhood and what what led you to to choosing the path that you chose Mm. Yeah, it all, it all starts when you're a kid, right? And um, I was no different. You know, I grew up in a firefighting and, and military family. Uh, my mother's side being all um, all fire with a little bit of military and then my father's side being all military. Uh, so I was immersed in it from, from basically birth, um, growing up around the firehouses, uh, you know, seeing my, my uncles run off the calls and, and, you know, seeing the guys all clean, you know, equipment and, and all that and hearing all the stories, right? And um, you know, it was always funny. I always tell people, you know, when I was asked as a kid by, you know, a teacher or a friend's parent or something, Hey, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, I never said I wanted to be a firefighter. I just said, I'm going to be a firefighter. Um, <laughs> mainly because I knew it was going to happen because I really didn't have a lot of choices. My upbringing was very strict. It was very disciplined. I joked that I was potty trained at gunpoint, um, which is funny now, but, um, it was, it was very emotionless um disciplined lifestyle uh, because of my family's uh, come to find out generational trauma uh, that was sort of bestowed upon me and um, so I had a bit of a rough childhood uh, my father was out of the picture by the time I was about five uh, I had a lot of abuse growing up and um, was very unsure of myself once I got into my adolescence in my teenage years very unsure had no idea who I was um, knew I was going to end up on the, in the fire service, but that was really the only certainty. It was either that or the Marines. And, um, you know, as I got into high school, it kind of, everything sort of started panning out and, uh, you know, it kind of sort of started to mold who I became as a man. 
at what point for you do you think you started having clarity as to who you were? That's that's often a challenging thing for people in in service professions. So, right, right. I you know honestly, I I always thought I always looked at myself as what the job was. That was who I was, and it was always well, I'm a fireman. You know, I'm an EMT. You know, or another title. You know, eventually, you know, I'm a father. I'm a husband. You know, things like that. It was always a title as to who I was. I I couldn't because of my you know specifically my childhood. And then the job sort of just being forced on me. I didn't really know who I was until much later in life. Um, once a lot of a lot more damage was done uh, through the job, I really started trying to find out who I really was. And, and these days, I I now know. So, what was your experience job? A lot of people, a lot of people talk about love hate relationship. Like there is a drive and a need and a passion um, and there's a lot of things that are positive about it but there's also the flip side of that what was what was your experience in that journey i think it, it goes both ways um i i had a you know a level of expectation put on me when i got on the job uh that a lot of people were like oh you, you must have had it easy you know you had family on the job so it was just kind of a shoe-in and you were probably they took it easy on you and it wasn't it wasn't there was it was i had to operate at a 10 all the time and i couldn't i couldn't even think of messing things up so but i was used to that that was my childhood that was that that level of operation that i was used to for the last 18 years because i got in when i was 18 i got in three days after my 18th birthday so i was very young um but the biggest thing for me was i had heard the stories my whole life i had heard all the bad calls i'd heard about people dying about bad fires about whatever but i wasn't fully prepared for it when i started seeing it immediately within the first couple months of being on the job and then as time went on and it, it was very obvious that we weren't really doing anything about this stuff we weren't talking about it we weren't trying to get people help we weren't we didn't know what the help was um and that it started to leave kind of a bad taste in my mouth and for a very long time especially towards the end of my career um, I was pretty bitter towards um, both fire and EMS because I worked both um, separately and together. So your your experience in the department um, was a slow progression towards that that dissatisfaction. Mm, yep. Did you know what was happening? Did you know that it was that accumulation of stress and the you know symptoms of post-traumatic stress and, and all of that kind of stuff? Did you know what was happening or it just kind of took you by surprise when you realized where? I, mean, I, I think it was, uh, again, I think it might be a, a little bit of both. I think because we didn't talk about um, you know, post-traumatic stress back then. You know, It really wasn't until about 2000. 12 to 15 that first responders are really being you know looked at as having potentially having it um i knew what i had been through in life i knew my childhood was always there um and you know some of the bad calls were definitely you know in the forefront um from time to time but i couldn't pinpoint why it was doing what it was doing I, I had no idea why i was always so angry i was i was one of those ones who was typically angry that's how i took out my uh my stress was anger and I just couldn't figure out why I was so so angry. And as more and more happened, 
on the job because that was what they call a black cloud. If it was going to happen, it was going to happen when I was working or I was on shift or whatever. And I just, I had a lot of bad calls and it always seemed to me obvious that when someone or a group of people as in the fire service go to continually go to bad calls, you're going to want to deal with that somehow. And it just wasn't being done. And then for me, and from what I hear a lot of other men and women, after you get to the point where you're affected by this and you end up taking it out on those you work with by being a bitter, angry person, then they sort of like just push you aside and cast you aside. And when that started to happen is really when that bad taste got put in my mouth, where it was like, I grew up around this. I have like 140 years of family tradition doing this. And this is how I get treated because it's affecting me. And it sort of led to me end up leaving the job uh, and not in a ceremonial way. So not with the celebrations and, and, and the, the joy of retirement. No, there was no plaque given to me in my retirement. My gold badge was thrown in the drawer and forgotten about for a year and a half. So it, uh, it was bad for a little bit. What are your feelings now that you've been out of it and that you've had time to process and to realize everything that occurred and and what the causations were there what is what are your feelings now towards the job and towards the people that you worked with older and wiser right that's what they always say is you get older you get wiser and i'm able to now being in my mid-40s uh look back on all this and realize that as a um culture as a community the, the first responder for, you know firefighting world um we were very uneducated and we were very naive to a lot of the problems with mental health and mental wellness and oblivious to the resources that have honestly been there for a, quite a while. Um, it was probably in the last two years. So I, I got out, I worked 96, 1996 to 2017. I officially retired in 2017, ended up on disability. Um, I did a lot of work. I had been in treatment since 2015 and probably around the middle of the pandemic. So around, this time in 2021, I really started looking at why I was so bitter. Why was I so angry at the job? And I started hashing out the individual incidents that I thought um, were why I was angry. And I come to realize that nobody actually deliberately cast me aside. And come to find out this is this is pretty true. I mean, there's some blatant, uh, you know, examples of people being, you know, treated differently because of their PTSD. But most people just didn't know how to approach me. I'm six foot five, and most of my life I've been 250 to 275 pounds. And when I get pissed, I am not an approachable person. And I spent a number of years being an angry person. And most people come to find out just didn't know how to help me. They didn't know what Keith needed. And this is a common problem because the culture feeds on itself. And we've always been told to suck it up. You know, we've always been told you have to be at a 10 and you cannot operate any lower. You have to be good all the time. And so I was not ever in a position to know how to ask for help because I was always conditioned to not be able to ask for help. We don't ask for help. Even though on the job, we ask for help. We, we can't ask for help from what the job does to us. And so a lot of this, I end up finding myself realizing it was more of a lack of education and me being unapproachable uh, with a lot of this. And so I made peace with it. A lot of people talk about 
the the feeling or the idea that there must be something wrong with me mm. because my whole family did this. Like everybody else was fine. Everybody else got through this. All my coworkers are good. What's wrong with me? Right. Did you have those kind of thoughts or that kind of experience that questioning, you know, your, your own value and your own capabilities? hundred percent. I absolutely did. And yeah, I used to think the same thing. I used to think, well, my family's been doing great. And then as I, went down the journey of healing and, and finding my, you know, my resiliency, I realized that a lot of, for why I am, a lot of what happened to me as a kid is because my family didn't handle this stuff good. You know, there was people in my life when I was growing up and when I first got on the job that weren't handling this stuff good. And that's a lot of why things were the way they, the way they were. But I always question what's wrong with me. Back when I was in it, when I was in the thick of it, when I was in the suck, as you, if you will, I was always like, why am I so different? Why, why is this shit affecting me so much? Why is it only me? Because everyone else was, you know, not really doing better, but they weren't doing what I was doing. So does that mean I'm weaker? Does that mean there's something wrong with me? Uh, and it took me a long time to accept that that wasn't the case. That was just um is what it is kind of thing and that the, i'm human we talk a lot about resilience hmm. what does resilience mean to you i think in in the very short sweet answer is um long you know like a long-term sort of basis where you know coping skills kind of you, you cope as things come up resiliency for me means that on an almost automatic way I'm able to sort of bounce back because I put into practice new habits for my wellness, where it's not just I'm waiting for shit to hit the fan and then we're going to deal with it. It's proactively I am I'm dealing with things and I'm healing from the, what I have been through to develop a stronger core inside you know my mind. So as stuff comes up, I'm able to cope with it and deal with it and heal from it instead of allowing it to build up or get pushed down. Um, in my mind, that's sort of where resilience kind of comes from. It's more of a, not necessarily just putting up with the shit, but being able to live through it and heal from it um, in an almost as it happens sort of way, instead of allowing it to be pushed aside, not to deal with it. Yeah. I've heard it said it's, it's the ability to bend and not break mm. under the stress. And I want to, for me, I think it's not just the ability to bend and not break, but as you say, it's a little more the measure of how quickly you're capable of recovering from that stress and and the um, the ability that you have to find the joy and the passion and the purpose and the the wonder in life right. at the same time that you're handling all of the stresses that inevitably come. So it's such an interesting word that we, that has so much nuance to it. Right. And, and I think there are a lot of elements to it that we can, that we could talk about. Uh, you are now that you're no longer in, in the service per se, you are still in service to others. So what is your current focus, your mission, your goal, 
and, and the steps that you're taking to achieve those outcomes you desire? Uh, my biggest thing now is just advocating for, for mental health and the stigma associated with particularly trauma. My focus, obviously, because of my life is, is trauma and PTSD. And obviously, I tend to focus that on the first responders because um, we're, we're always the forgotten ones in society when it comes to really anything. Um, and so what just sort of started in 2015 when I got diagnosed is doing like Facebook posts, right? Social media is, you know, some of the best, quote unquote, uh, best um, free marketing you can get. And so, uh, I started kind of posting things and then I started a group that, you know, grew pretty good and it went international and we started, you know, having, um, you know, helping people and getting information out to, you know, first responders and their families and stuff. Um, and I was already sort of, um, I tried my hand at writing, uh, which for me is a, is a big deal. I coasted by on cliff notes in school and I think I wrote two papers in college uh, so, uh, writing was a big deal. I started journaling, started writing all my stuff out, um, what I had been through, what I was going through during treatments, uh, all that. And it became very cathartic. I started healing as I was writing and I was realized I was getting all this stuff out of me, um, and whatnot. And that sort of took off over the years and, um, it, writing became like an outlet for me and it became a way for me to have another voice in words and it became like something I look forward to. And after I left the job, I didn't really know what I looked forward to anymore. I was always told what I looked forward to. Um, but when I left and I was almost 40 or just about 40, I had no idea. And now I had this new thing. I had this, I was helping people. I was talking to people. I was talking about my stuff. I was being blunt. I was being raw. I wasn't hiding or holding anything back. I was being transparent and I was healing when I was doing it because I was getting it out of me, whether it was words out of my mouth or words on a piece of paper, I was getting it out. And so as time went on, I started doing more, getting more out of my comfort zone. And I started speaking publicly about it. I started going to conferences and speaking. I started doing podcasts. Um, I started writing articles, which is crazy for me to be, to have an article in an actual magazine or on a website is just, it's just crazy. And, um, you know, I got asked to write a chapter in a book. And when I got asked to write this chapter book, I was like, gee whiz, because I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing with my own, my own book, all these journal things and all this writing uh, that I had spent, you know, four or five years putting together. I had no idea what I was going to do with it. And I got asked to write a chapter for a book on um, overcoming advers uh, adversity and like trauma. Um, and uh, that book is coming out in September, which to me still... It just blows my mind that I'm going to be in a book. And the name of the book is Scars of Stars. Um, and it's volume three of it. And there's, there's like 16 other authors. And it's just a great collection of stories. And so that sort of pushed me to do more. And before I knew it, I was I was doing documentaries and doing stuff on film, which is, again, weird for me. You know, I'm a grunt. You know, I've always been you know, a firefighter and an EMT and as funny as I joke about it, I'm a pretty humble guy. And to think that, you know, I'm doing things, all the things I'm doing now that I had never really done before the last two or three years, it really, to me, I hold on to it. I hold on because this is healing to me. This is me living outside of my comfort zone, something that everyone is able to do. 
sometimes when you're in the shit and you're dealing with trauma, you can't see it. And so I hold on to these things and I push even more and I, I challenge myself to do things I never would. And so I keep coming up with new ways to, to reach people um, about this message about mental health and that you're not alone and that there is there is hope. So if someone would have told you that someday you were going to be leading a movement in <laughs> and a representative, a voice for those that you were working with, you would not have believed that? Not at this capacity. I always, I always pictured myself being that 65, 66 year old guy who was going to, have to get dr drugged out of the uh, firehouse by his family. Um, I never thought it'd be on a platform like I am. Expected to be a lifer. That was, that was the only thing I, I knew, you know, and because I experienced and, and did the job, the only, only one that I knew I was going to do, it led me to be able to do what I'm currently doing which is it's a weird conundrum in a way, but I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now if I hadn't done and gone through what I had. And so um, I don't, I would have told someone you're full of shit. If they would have said that to me 20 years ago, I would have been like, yeah, no, 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 not me. Well, now that you're in that place where you are, where you have ownership, Kind of for the first time in your life, you have ownership of your destiny, of your of your forward momentum. Anything's possible right. for you. What what does that vision look like for you now? What do you want to see in five years? It's crazy because I've realized in the last, specifically the last eighteen months or so, that throughout my life, I've always felt like a failure. I've always felt like I couldn't do enough. But in the last eighteen months. I've realized that pretty much anything I've set my mind to, I've done and I've accomplished it. And for the most part, to the degree I initially thought I was going to. And that takes a part of your brain, a part of your dedication, your discipline specifically, that I never really realized I had. And for me, my, my biggest thing is seeing things change in the, in the specifically the fire service, but first responder world as a whole, uh, there just isn't enough education on this. And there are a few of us, and I do mean a few, there's not a lot. There's definitely not more than six to 10 of us that, that speak as transparently as I do on this. Uh, my biggest goal is, is to make access to um, mental wellness education available to every service department, fire police, dispatch, corrections, whatever it is, because all their members need it. All of them. And we need to start talking about this stuff before the shit hits the fan. We got to stop waiting to that point because it's not helpful. Because by the time it gets to that point, people are already trying to kill themselves. People are already getting divorces. People are already, you know, in abuse situations. You know, domestic violence is huge in the first responder world. It's something we don't often talk about, but there's a lot of it out there. You know, it's this, if we're more proactive about this stuff, we're going to solve a lot of the problems. And that's my hope is that we're in five years time, some sort of percentage of the departments and organizations in this country are accessing education of some sort routinely, not just their annual, not just their every two years, like monthly trainings, quarterly trainings on mental wellness and resiliency.
One of the challenges that I've faced doing this work, um, and we're, we're kind of on a similar pathway, is the conversation seems to revolve primarily around post-traumatic stress disorder. Everybody wants to talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and suicide, like that's the only conversation to be had, when really I think what's being missed with a broad stroke is that we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that are subdiagnostic, like we're not talking about clinical post-traumatic stress disorder. We right. have people in place for that. There are therapists, you know, everybody, everybody knows once you get to the disorder, there's actually a process to go through. But we're talking about everything that comes before that, all of the signs and symptoms and the vulnerabilities, all of the trauma accumulation, all of the stress reduction, all of the relationships falling apart, all of the coping strategies and skills that are good, bad, ugly, whatever. <laughs> like we're talking about life. We're talking yep. about just living the best life that a person could possibly live. So we don't need in this context and in every layer of the process, we don't need PhD level therapists to be doing all of this work. Nope. We need them, but they have their place, which is at the end of this spectrum that we're talking about. And normally human beings with some education and some experience and some passion can do this work mm -hmm. right so this shortage of people as you say you know there's really only a handful of people that are like passionately driven to do this work that have this objective there's so many more people who would be capable of this work if they realized how impactful and how necessary that is yep it's very true. And, and you're right. It's a spectrum. You know, there's everything that happens before someone has, you know, hits crisis and, and is on the suicidal path. Right. And there's so much that us as peers um, can do for each other to, you know, navigate this this path of, you know, what is this lifestyle in the first responder world? 100 percent. So it's always interesting to get with someone who has the ability to look back. What would you have needed? What would have changed the trajectory for you? Hmm. I think about this a lot, uh, for sure. It's tough because um, the, the culture was so caught up when I got on in the mid-90s um, with this series, like the, the, you hear all the time, the suck it up buttercup mentality. And it just became, it was just like the, uh, the don't ask, don't tell in the military. You just didn't talk about it. You didn't, you just, you didn't, you know, you had a beer, you sat on the tailgate and, and drank a beer or smoked the butt. And maybe you got a, you know, tap on the shoulder. Um, because you're, you're sitting there talking about some pretty heavy stuff, but you're not crying or anything. So you're, you're a man, right? Especially as a man, it was tough as a man because you had this even higher level of expectation, um, to operate at for me i would have needed to know and feel that if i came out about being affected by this that i was going to be supported and the little that i tried to you know you know tip you know dip the toe in if you will to try to see if that was going to happen it very much wasn't going to because we were so uneducated and then the culture was so caught up in this well unless you've gone to combat you can't be affected by this and it's like now 
we look back and it's like we're spending 24 hours at a whack going to everyone else's worst days and we're coming back in 48 hours to do it all over again over and over and over and over again for years for decades how are we not being affected by this um so i would have needed to know and feel that i, I was going to be supported i guess the short answer so a big part of this is the concept of not being alone the the idea that we're all in this together and we're all having similar experiences mm -hmm. and that's that's a level of awareness that even still is challenging for people to understand yep as you go out and and have these conversations with leaders and administrators and you know you're you're speaking in front of organizations what is the reception that you're receiving so it's it's definitely mixed uh, i've done presentations um very broad spectrum i've done them for uh you know departments as like their training night i've gone to emt classes i've done conferences that are specifically mental health conferences i've done ones that are like you know firefighter gala things and they have little rooms and they have here's how to hoist a ladder here's how to advance a hose and here's keith talking about you know ptsd um and it depends so i always ask um for the most part in the beginning when i start uh presenting is who in this room knows someone who's been affected by suicide or knows someone who has ended their life? And everyone raises their hand. And I, I have to feel the room, but almost every time I follow it up with who here has had a suicide attempt. And in the beginning, so a year and a half, two, two years ago, almost no hands stayed up. There would be a few. Now, and I just witnessed this at someone else's conference where they were presenting, it's like 75% of the room and a large crowd. We're talking 200 people now leave their hands up when you ask that question. So awareness is definitely up. I think this, the culture itself, the supportive part of it, the, hey, I'm not alone. I think we're starting to break through that. And I think the reason for that is um, my generation and just older are now in the brass, right? They're now in the higher ranks. They're now running departments and organizations and making the quote unquote rules and SOGs and SOPs. They're a little bit more open-minded than the generation right before. And I think that um, from my experience that we're starting to amp up the awareness to the point where everybody's starting to realize, oh, holy shit. <laughs> like I'm working with a bunch of people who are also feel this way. Like when I sit at the kitchen table and I say, wow, that call really sucked. It's been, it's been bothering me for a week. I get head nods from everyone and two people come up to me and, and confirm that they're going through the same thing. You know, people are talking about this now and that's what needs to happen for someone who is not doing well to be able to feel like they need, they can come out and talk about this, pull their captain aside, pull their partner aside, whatever it may be, an administrator, maybe HR, whatever it may be, and be like, listen, I'm not doing well. That culture, I think, is starting to become what we need it to become from what I see, you know, in my position. So one of the one of the pillars that we're basing our programming on at, at Battle to Be, which is our 501c3, um, is the idea that we need to implement training 
and programming from high, like pre-hire to retire and beyond, because even retirement is is a place where we lose a lot of folks to yep. to that struggle with identity. So that now I have nothing to live for because I never created who I am or what my life means to me if I'm not doing this job. Bingo. So, and when we talk about these types of trainings, it's not, we're not talking about always discussing the tragedy of mental illness and the horrific things that can happen to you. We're just literally talking about coping skills. Mm -hmm. So it, what, what positive ways have you changed the coping skills that you used in the beginning? Because you talked a little mm -hmm. bit about, you know, the, the use of alcohol and 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 the typical culture of, you know, let's just smoke some weed, let's just have a drink. Um, and we didn't really talk about promiscuity and gambling and some of those other risk-taking behaviors and the other standards, but what how has your coping strategies and coping skills changed over time? Uh, the biggest thing was for me was um, trying coping skills that were outside my comfort zone. And those would be more holistic ones. Um, you know, it was always, for me, it was always yoga and Reiki and meditation and you know, mindfulness was all horseshit. It was all hocus pocus and, you know, breath work, especially too. Uh, and it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I ended up meeting someone, uh, someone who now does public speaking as well. He's a three-tour combat Marine. And he, when I, I remember when I first met him, he's like, Hey bro, like, what are you into? Like, do you, do you, do you smoke weed? Do you, do you meditate? And I, I looked like, do I meditate? Now, this is a, you know, kind of a badass character who's, you know, done some stuff. Uh, and he's asking me if I meditated and, and I didn't make fun of it as much as I thought I was going to that time. And come to find out mindfulness and meditation and it ended up being one of the best coping skills I adopted in my life. Living in the now has gotten me through some horrendous shit that has happened in the last two years. Because the stuff doesn't stop, folks. Just because you go down a healing path and you start dealing with life better, doesn't mean that all bad things are going to stop. And I've had a few of them happen uh, in the last couple of years that because I'm practicing this, this new, very healthy coping skill, if you will, I just consider it part of who I am, I was able to deal with it better. And I've realized over the last 18 months, a year, um, that I'm practicing, you know, mindfulness in everything I do. And it, and it just, it gives me a level of clarity that I've never had in my life. And, you know, I've tried everything you just said. I've done, I've done the drugs. I've done the alcohol, the, you know, you messing around with anyone and anything to get through. And all it did was mask the symptoms for a little bit, get me through the moment. And then they came back worse. And with these healthy coping skills that I've adapted mainly the mindfulness and the meditation, um, you're not masking anything. You're living in the now and you're healing and you're working through whatever may be happening. Yeah. Breath work is always a really interesting topic to talk mm -hmm. about with, with first responders because no. that there is a pervasive idea that it is woo woo and weird and, you know, all this crazy stuff where if they've heard something about it, it's often, you know, I just take three really deep, slow breaths, but they don't, 
know why or how any of that works. So right. we're taking these deep breaths that are actually increasing anxiety instead of reducing anxiety because they don't, they don't know. Right. And that's, you know, what you're told, oh, you need to calm down. Just take some deep breaths. Everything will be okay. But, but they're not getting the nervous system regulation part of it. And, and, and first responders are information people. Yeah. Like, if you can tell them why your brain works a certain way and and put that like technology to it, why does it work this way? Why would you want to do this thing that seems crazy and woo-woo and like all all fluffy? It's like you put yeah. that why and that the mechanics to it, and it's much more palatable. It's much more desirable because then there's that like, ooh, my engine works this way. Right. Oh, I need to work on this piece of my engine, you know, so there is a way to talk about these things that is a little less, um, a little less challenging for the yeah. first responder mind. I think we're all logistic people, right? We're logistically minded because of what our jobs entail that once you break it down for us on, this is why it works. This is how it affects your parasympathetic system, the blah, 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 all this. A lot of people, you know, hone in on it and, and we'll use it. I, I actually, in the last like six months, I actually started doing a um, quick um, explanation demonstration with the crowd on four, seven, eight breathing. And people are like, oh, that's really easy. I can literally do that anywhere. And I'm like, I literally did it three times during my presentation. And you people didn't even notice. Like it's, it's not, once you break it down and why it works and how to do it, you know, simple breath work, is very easy and then you know you get the more uh invasive breath work the ones that are typically guided by an instructor uh those are a whole different animal and i'm going to tell you something i i had i went through an experience with it down in florida when i was vetting a uh, treatment facility and it was one of the most i don't even know how to describe it it was it was a very impactful moment um and it was very unexpected and it, and it caused me to uh, shift uh, where I was with my healing. And uh, so breath work, I swear by breath work too. It's huge. Did you do um, the forced exhalation, like cathartic breath work? I think, I think that's what it was. It was like a sort of a rapid shallow breathing followed by um, the longer breaths. And then you're, it's quiet, there's music, you get covered in a blanket, you're sort of like reclined and the person in the room who's running it sort of guys you through everything and end up i end up having a, a very spiritual moment with it um and it allowed me to shift gears and and because of it i've just had monumental healing ever since yeah very focused on trauma release right yep it's always good to hear stories of strategies that people often find to be way outside their box mm. We want to hear those things that work for you because uh, not very many people are willing to experience it unless they know someone who has. So, so you being able to talk about those kind of things helps other people go, oh, you know, that might be interesting. Uh, what do you know or, or what have you experienced yourself or someone that you know uh, with ketamine? That's been a, mm -hmm. a big topic of conversation lately. Yeah, ketamine is a new thing, uh, you know, for trauma, especially non-military trauma um that I, I actually have a few contacts that have gone through it i know someone through one of our uh groups uh that is actively uh getting treated for it and i've heard good things i've heard uh 
like anything, I think, I think there's pros and cons with all of it. But, um, you know, the nice thing about ketamine is it can get you through it. It doesn't have to be a long-term thing, uh, which for me, I'm very much, uh, someone who's like, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals are great for acute symptoms, uh, when you're in crisis specifically. Uh, but I am someone who in my mind, at least where I stand right now, will never go back on long-term pharmaceuticals because there are so many other ways specifically with trauma, uh, to healthfully deal with it. And, um, so ketamine is, I've seen some friends who have had really good results. Um, but it needs to be, you need to be, for one thing, one thing I have found out, you need to be very honest with whoever you're going to uh, about your past. You have to be very, you don't necessarily have to give all the details, but you have to be very honest when you go through the uh, processing for it, uh, because it's a pretty intense thing. And a lot of times things can come up if you don't, uh, if you don't make the provider aware. So. Right. Right. And, and because I, I'm a trauma focused uh, practitioner. So, so when we talk about things like ketamine, um, it has the ability to take down barriers and to take down walls and to bring experiences in a very aggressive way to the forefront of your mind so that you can process them. Yep. So, so what, what the hesitancy I think that I'm seeing in you is to say, uh, just say outright that if you have childhood sexual abuse, if you yep. have a history of extraordinary violence in your family that you're not ready to face, that you're not, you're not ready to look at going through one of these processes, even if you're focusing or your intention is to focus on recent experiences in your career, it, it can have, it can have the uh, unwanted effect of bringing up things that you're not ready to look at. So, so would I be accurate in, hundred percent what you were hedging there <laughs> yeah i mean and, and honestly there's other treatments that can do the same thing and uh i had a very similar experience with emdr a lot of people have great um experiences with the emdr and i always forget what every letter stands for but it's the left brain right brain processing thing that they do and there's different ways of doing it and i wasn't fully warned going into it but i at that time when i had it done i also wasn't being completely honest you know specifically with myself but anyone who asked, I wouldn't give up the ghost about my childhood trauma. And there's a lot of bad shit back there. And when I started doing EMDR, I had some bad results because of it. And it was because I didn't say, hey, I was sexually abused and raped as a, as a kid. And when they did this, it opened up a whole bunch of different Pandora's boxes. And not even one, several. And it had bad results. And so I always tell people, no matter what you do, when it comes to invasive sort of treatments, especially like processing treatments or anything that's going to lower your guard, you have to be honest. You have to, you have to kind of necessarily give all the details, but you have to at least acknowledge that certain things have happened to you. Cause at some point these are going to open those doors and you have to be kind of prepared um, to face them eventually. This is a really important conversation to have because uh, I've had a number of clients come to me after and because they had horrific experiences with practitioners. And a lot of those experiences come from not building the relationship and not spending mm. the time before a process like that is implemented. Uh, I, For me, my personal suggestion, because I, I'm certified in EMDR, 
but I practice something that's an alternative to that. It's a memory reprocessing and reintegration, which is internal family systems and timeline based. Mm. So it's, it's a form of hypnosis and visualize it, guided visualization that's based on the eye movement and, yep. and the brain being integrated. But it sets the experience way far away from you so that you're not in it, so that you're you're observing it in different ways and you have different layers of being able to protect yourself from it. Uh, and a lot of people who have come and asked about it have had experiences where they had one session or two sessions with a therapist or, or with a practitioner, and then they jumped right into EMDR. Mm. You can't possibly have a solid understanding of someone's background and someone's history to safely do a process like that right. in one or two sessions. That is, in my mind, like I see that as as absolute irresponsible, like malpractice. To, to me and my morality, that's a malpractice. Um, it's unethical. Uh, and I yep. understand there's a budget problem and that we're all trying to hurry through this process, but uh, you, there's a lot of coping strategies. There's a lot of nervous system regulation preparation. There's a lot of um, history and, and trust that has to be built with someone before you jump into those kind of processes. 100% agree. 100% agree. And, you know, let's address the, the elephant in the room here that a lot of first responders um, and I know this through research that I've been part of, a lot of first responders, a majority, I don't know exactly the percentage, but probably three quarters, um, have childhood trauma of some sort. And it's very prevalent. And so when they go to get treatment, a lot of them, that was the same way, focus in on the calls. Oh, I saw this dead kid. I, I saw this burnt up grandma. I, I, you know, blah, 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 blah. We've all heard them. A lot of times, a lot of these first responders, specifically the men, don't get the healing they need or the beginning of the healing they need until they address that elephant. And that elephant is uncle this or daddy this or mommy this when I was five or six or whatever. And once they acknowledge that, once they are they get through that part of the stigma that, you know, something, a lot of what affects me on the day to day is actually because of what happened to me when I was a kid and I was innocent. Once they address that, the other stuff starts to float away and heal on its own. And I can honestly attest to that. Once I started dealing with more of my childhood stuff, my top five to 10 calls all started drifting away. The worst calls I ever did in my life all started drifting away and healing on their own. And now at 45 years old, I'm now processing my personal stuff. And a lot of first responders think that they're going to go there and it's going to be like sitting at the kitchen table in the firehouse. And we're just going to talk about all the bad calls. We did. And honestly, that stuff heals itself with enough time. It's dealing with the personal stuff and how these things affected you personally, the stuff from the job, the stuff before the job that really ultimately leads to long-term healing and growth and a healthy family system. Another really important part of the conversation is the idea that we're talking about whole individual people and whole lives, not just how the job affects you, but how everything that you've ever experienced, everything that you've ever done, seen, felt, all the beliefs that you have about yourself, all of these things are factors in these traumatic stress and accumulated stress outcomes. All of these things are interconnected and they, they can't be separated. They're 
all equally important. Mm-hmm. It all, it, it's who makes a person, it's what makes a person. You know, we are what we experience. It's kind of like that old saying, you are what you eat. You are what you experience. Everything in life makes you who you are. And sure, we get inundated as first responders because of what our job is. Um, but it's not necessarily because you're seeing death every day. There's usually a correlation between what you're seeing and some other part of your personal life that is why it's taking an event and creating a trauma within you. And that's really where I think people need to try to educate themselves a little bit before trying to think that, you know, I'm going to go talk to a therapist about all the bad calls they did, and that's going to fix me. It's not. It's going to help. But you really got to look at you as a person. What have you been through? Right. Got to go deeper. Got to go deeper. And that's a tough pill to sell with a lot of responders. Uh, but I think we're getting there. I, I honestly think we're getting there. I talked to a lot more people who are like, hey, I actually dealt with my first divorce in therapy instead of I dealt with the last six calls I did. Uh, and so we're hearing more of that in first responders. Uh, and now we're seeing first responders spouses who deal with like secondary trauma. Now they're starting to get help. And, you know, the family unit is starting to get a little bit better because we're dealing with the deeper stuff. Family is a, a whole nother topic in, mm. in this journey. Um, how did the job affect your family? Um, well, it was, it was hard. I, um, I was home a lot. I have two adult children. Uh, I have a almost 23 year old son and a, uh, 21 year old daughter. And, uh, upon having a four year old now, and I wasn't around a lot when my older kids were, were young, uh, it took me away. It took me away on holidays. It took me away long shifts, 36 hour shifts, sometimes two days back to back. Uh, I missed a lot. So there was definitely a barrier. Uh, but then, specifically when I left the job, uh, I was a big letdown to my family because there was still members of my family that have been doing it for a very long time. Uh, and so I didn't live up to that expectation. And so that dynamic caused a huge amount of um, issues in my family. But then as I got out of the job with my current wife, uh, I realized that I had picked up some pretty nasty habits because of the lifestyle I lived, working 80 to 100 hours a week for 20 years. Um, I picked up a lot of nasty habits that I then had to break myself out of because it was affecting my family and things that we don't think about, um, the way I talk to them, the way I, I, I try to be as clear as I am on the job, but I don't need to be as intense, uh, you know, saying thing, conversational things and stuff like that. So the job affected a lot of our, my life. And I always tell people, you may not have moral injury, PTSD, or administrative betrayal or anything else, but you are affected by this job somehow. And you were probably carrying it home to your loved ones one way or the other. Right. Absolutely. So would, what would you tell, what would you tell people that, that are following your shoes that are getting into the career now with those same expectations that they're not doing it of their own volition necessarily but they're doing it because it's expected of them i guess the the biggest thing is they got to be honest with themselves i mean i i still had a very enjoyable career uh on both you know the municipal fire and ems and the private ems side uh even though i knew i 
who's going to have to do it? It was expected for me to do it. Once I was in it, I was doing everything in my career. It was me. My family wasn't doing that. That was all me. And so the biggest thing I always tell people who are like kind of feeling like they're almost being forced, uh, whether it's a you know social expectation or a family, um, is you just got to be honest with yourself. Why are you doing this job? Is it I'm a hero and, and heroes go out and save lives? Is it my family expects me to do this? Once you're in it and you're doing it, even if you were expected to do it, why are you, do, why are you still there? Like, honestly, why are you still there? And the only person who has that answer is that individual. I have my answer. I know why I did it. And honestly, it's the same as a lot of people who were in similar shoes to me. And that's because I wanted to be there for people because no one was there for me. And that's why I did the job as long as I did. Because I was going to be there for people because no one was there for me when I needed it. I love that because so often, like one of the first conversations that generally we have with people is, okay, what's your why? You know, why are you mm -hmm. doing what you're doing? And everybody says, like, that little shrug, that little, you know, I've heard this all before, blow it off because I wanted to help people. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a good canned answer. We all wanted to help people or we wouldn't be in this kind of service. What is the feeling you're looking to get? What is underneath that? I wanted to help people. What is the emptiness you're trying to fill by helping people? What is, what is the driving force behind that wanting to help people? Because you're going to sacrifice a lot for that desire to help people. So what is fueling that? What is fueling that fire? And can you be honest with yourself and actually answer that question? Right. And if right. you're just doing it because it's expected of you, you'll never have that answer and you'll never have that fuel and that fire. Absolutely. And, you know, honestly, it's, and I know some academies and some training programs ask it, but they're there. It needs to be asked in the beginning. Not because you need to be cast out or whatever, but you, you kind of need to, when you first put on those boots or those, you know, that gear, or, you know, whatever it is, strap that gun to your hip, whatever it may be, you, you should probably have an idea as to why you're doing it. Because as much as this job isn't, you know, it's dangerous and yet people die doing it, um, the chances of you going out and dying in the line of duty are a lot lower than ultimately you ending your own life. We know that these days. But you kind of need to know why you're there, not for anyone else's sake, not for the chief of the department, not for anyone but you. And sometimes being asked that question can get people a perspective on who they are that can make everything else fall into place the way it needs to. If you're actually looking within as to why you're doing something, anything, and you own it, you're going to have a better time doing it. Yeah, you'll be better at it. With that. Be better at it, yep. So what's next for Keith? Oh, uh, I kind of just do whatever I can to do anything I can. And, you know, right now I'm working on, uh, unofficially working on uh, a pitch for a possible, um, you know, podcast series, uh, like a docu-series uh, where we're going to delve into uh, you know, trauma, uh, childhood trauma, family trauma, uh, trauma from the job. And we're going to interview people. And it's uh, we're hoping to do like a season of this. We're hoping hopefully it'll grab and it'll be an ongoing series. where We can kind of look at different kinds of, you know, trauma from different groups, different uh, social groups, different things like that, different careers, um, because it's something that really needs to be talked about. And, and this is for me, this is something very new. I mean, 
you know, writing scripts and writing pitches for this, for this sort of shit is, is not who I was, but I'll tell you, uh, it's a part of my life now. And I, and I love every minute of it. And it's, it's always a challenge. And I, these days, and even when I was on the job, I love being challenged and, and I perpetually live out of my comfort zone in order to find out what I am capable of doing. And I have discovered I am pretty capable of some pretty amazing things. And so that's really my, my next step with that. And, and then ultimately getting my own book into publication, hopefully in the next six months to uh, six to 10 months. So that's a quick timeline, six to 10 months. Yeah. Well, I've been writing this thing since 2015 and it's honestly been kind of <laughs> done with information for about three years. So uh, it's been a hesitation, honestly. And, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe part of it was being so transparent. I was afraid of the information I was going to share in it being out there. But now that I've done all the talks that I've done and everything else, I've basically told every part of my life somewhere and it's all out there. So now I don't care. So now it's just the process of getting it into a book form is really the uh, the next step. I think there's something really, really healing and really final about putting your story out there. Mm. I have, um, I've only put part of mine out there, like similarly in a in a chapter, mm. uh, in a in a trauma focused book. But there's that trepidation before you do it that oh, <laughs> you know, my my mom's gonna read this, like right. the, like people that I don't necessarily want to see, you know, this dark and ugly. Um, part of the experience, they're going to see that. But once you do it, then it doesn't matter anymore. And you realize that that truth, your truth, uh, it, it needs to be out there. Like, it doesn't matter what other people think about it. It doesn't matter what their experience of your truth is. That once you have put it out there, there's a, a level of release that you can finally just say, you know, yes, this is this is what I experienced, and and now this is over here instead of here, and and there's a letting go and a putting down that I I'm not sure can happen any other way. Like, right? It's it's an extraordinary experience that you just kind of have to you have to have. <laughs> I think it's part of the experience. I I think you know, verbally or however form owning, seeing and owning your shit is, is part of that journey. And I think some people are better at it than others, but I, I think as a whole first responders, that culture is just, we're so hyper-focused on being the best that we can be in our job that we don't own all this other stuff that once you just say it, once you just get it out, it's out. And it just becomes part of who you are and it doesn't have to hold you back. It could be strength. It could be strength and trauma. You don't have to be perfect anymore. Nope. There's no holes in these hands. You know what I mean? Well, I think we've had an amazing conversation and I look forward to seeing what comes from your creativity and your passion and desire over the next few years because i have seen you have extraordinary extraordinary personal and professional growth over the course of this year so i am for whatever little bit it matters i am extremely proud of you and and the steps that you have taken and that this journey that you're on so thank you that means that means a lot you know you don't you don't expect feedback and you don't expect accolades um 
but it does help when you do these things. Sometimes it's nice to hear when people are uh, in your corner. Anything you ever need, just reach out. And what would you leave our audience with? What are your last words? Biggest thing is you are not alone. There are more people going through whatever you are than you may be able to fathom. And we'll put a link so that you can find all of the amazing things that Keith is up to uh, down below this podcast. Um, and of course, please reach out to either one of us if you have questions, comments. We love your feedback. We want to hear what you think about this episode. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Krista. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Rise Up, a Voices from the Frontline. If you like this podcast and want to help support us or the organization Battle to Be, you can easily do so at battle2b.org, B-A-T-T-L-E, the number two, B-E.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Everything we do is funded by people just like you. We are working on getting post-traumatic and occupational stress resources out to every single organization and field that we can get it into from hire to retire and beyond. And we provide services for individuals, families, and organizations and no charge to you. Uh, quite often we have a sliding scale and low fees for everything else. We want to make sure that access and affordability are at the top of our priority list. So make sure that stigma is not stopping you and we won't let finances stop you. So if you are ready to explore uh, the healing journey, if you're ready to get some resources or just to get some education and information, please reach out. And again, B-A-T-T-L-E, the number two, B-E.org. Have an amazing day. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Voices from the Frontlines. <laughs>